Ah, hey guys, how's everybody doing? Everybody enjoying the conference so far? Yes? Good. Do I have any chemists in the audience? Okay, so you, you will probably hate me by the end of this, uh, the end of this little presentation. Um, the, the real purpose of my presentation is to get people who are not comfortable with chemistry to realize it's not rocket science, uh, it's not all that difficult, it's actually kind of fun, and also to realize that there are many interactions going on in your aquarium and no one parameter is going to indicate the health of your aquarium. You really need to start to understand what some of those relationships are, what some of the cycles are, um, and, and how they relate to each other. And certainly that will, uh, will have some indication and, and some relation to the health of your animals. We're gonna start with some very, very basic stuff. We're gonna start with the most basic concepts. And we're going to oversimplify a lot of stuff today. This is not meant to give you a complete understanding of all of the chemical re reactions in your aquarium. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, but sometimes an oversimplification is an awesome way to start to understand something that's way more complicated. Some of the questions that we're going to ask today have really simple answers, and some of the questions are more um, are, are complicated with simple answers, and some of the questions are simple questions that turn out to have a little bit more complex answers than we would like. And so we're going to play both sides of that game today. Now, whether you've got a really large aquarium like this, or a slightly smaller aquarium, or even a tiny aquarium, the chemistry that's going on inside of there is basically the same in a thousand gallon reef as it is in a half gallon nano. And so it can get pretty complicated. You can be chasing numbers forever, but it is important to understand which ones are important and which ones are not as important. It can get pretty complicated. This is an actual diagram of, a, of an aquarium system that a gentleman was setting up. Um, great diagram, a lot of work and really complex. We're gonna shatter that kind of thinking today and we're gonna get into stuff that's more obvious and then we're gonna work our way up, all right? So we're gonna start with the most simplest, most basic concept that there is, which is the fact that the coral polyps are gonna use calcium and carbonates to build their calcium carbonate skeleton. This is kind of where it all starts. Now to explain this, I'm gonna show you my coral polyp. Here's our coral polyp, a little schematic, okay? And we're gonna have, some, I'm gonna bring in some of the ions that are floating around. I'm showing you the calcium ones and the carbonate ones. Now the first really important thing to understand about this is that most of the calcium and the carbonate ions that are floating around the tank are bonded to something. They're not a free calcium ion or a free carbonate ion. They're bonded to something. And those bonds are gonna break and reform. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But what I'm showing you in order to simplify things is a snapshot of one moment where I'm picking just the free calcium and carbonate ions to show you what this tank looks like at this particular instant in time. Now these calcium and carbonate ions are gonna float around and the zooxanthellae, the coral polyp with the help of the zooxanthellae is going to find a calcium and carbonate pair. 
and it's going to pair those things up and deposit it down at the base of the coral polyp. And that's how that calcium carbonate skeleton gets built. And as this stuff floats around, the zooxanthellae is going to continue to help the coral polyp grab those calcium carbonate pairs and build its skeleton. That's how the coral grows. All that purple stuff that you see on the bottom of the, of the coral there is the skeleton of the coral growing. Now the takeaway from this, the thing that I want you to understand from this, is that if we take this calcium and carbonate uh, ions and we put them together and deposit them and build this calcium carbonate matrix at the bottom, look at what's happened out in the water column. We took them out of the water column. And this is why in a stony reef we need to constantly reinforce and, and supplement the calcium and the alkalinity because if our corals are growing, they're constantly taking it out of the water column for us and we need to put it back in so they have more to grow more. It's a pretty simple concept, but it's where the whole thing kind of starts. Now aquariums, whether they're freshwater or saltwater, whether they're reef aquariums or fowler or whatever, they're cyclical animals. There, there are all kinds of cycles going on at the aquarium at any one given time. And you can look at those cycles in a lot of different ways. But you can't deny the fact that there's lots of interrelated cycles going on in the aquarium. If you ask 15 people about what these cycles mean, some of those people are going to say one thing and some of those people are going to say something else. But none of them will deny that the cycles are there. They, may argue, they might argue a little bit about what those cycles mean and what you need to do about those cycles. So we're going to look at one of the most important cycle relationships that's going on in your system, and that's how alkalinity and pH work together in, a, in an aquarium. Now this explanation is going to be as far away from chemistry as it can possibly be. And in fact, I'm going to start the explanation with two steel 50-gallon drums. And I'm going to take the fronts of these drums off so we can see inside of them. And on the drum on the right, I'm going to put a milking stool, a little three-legged milking stool. And on top of that milking stool, I'm going to put a sump pump. And see this little float on the sump pump here? I'm going to take that float off the sump pump, and I'm going to attach it. Oops, sorry, wrong way. I'm going to attach it to the barrel on the other side. And now I'm going to connect it back to the sump pump with a wire. Now that I've done that, I can plumb my sump pump. So I'm going to plumb the sump pump so it pumps from one barrel over to the other barrel. Now that I'm all plumbed and ready to go, I can start to put some numbers on these barrels. The barrels on the left, I'm going to label towards the bottom at six and a half and up about three quarters away, about 8.5. The barrel on the right, I'm going to label at the level of that milking stool, about three and a half, and then up from there. Now, in my entire talk today, don't put too much emphasis on exact numbers. I'm showing you trends. If you keep your tank one place or another, we're talking about highs and lows. We're not talking about exactly, you know, 9.27653. All right, so now that we've got these uh, labeled with their numbers, we can start to put some labels on these barrels. My barrel at the left there, we're going to call the pH barrel. And the barrel on the right is going to be our dKH barrel. By the way, I'll use the terms dKH, alkalinity, and carbonates all kind of interchangeably. All right, so there's our barrels. Well, let's fill them up with some water. 
We're gonna take the pH barrel, fill it up to about 8.4, and we'll take the DKH barrel and fill it up to about seven and a half or eight. So this is a healthy reef tank. And again, if you keep your parameters a little different, assume that those numbers are where you keep your parameters. All right, now, you go to your local reef shop and you buy a really beautiful, adult, gorgeous, big, fat pearl wrasse. And that wrasse is doing okay, but one night he burrows down under the rocks and he dies. I'm sorry, it happens. He starts to rot. Now when that big fat pearl wrasse starts to rot, it's as if we take a pitcher and we take some water out of the pH barrel. He literally is gonna lower our pH. Now he's a really big pearl wrasse, so he's gonna continue to draw pH out of the barrel, but now look what's happened. Our water in our pH barrel has gotten to the level of that float valve, so the float valve now is tripping that wire and telling the sump pump to pump some water over. And so it does. And our level in our DKH barrel drops a little bit and our pH comes back up to 8.2 to 8.4. He's a really big wrasse and he's really still rotting away. So he goes in and he takes more pH out of that barrel. And again, the water level drops down to the place where it trips the float valve and more DKH comes over. Now you can see what's happened is that the water in our DKH barrel is down at the level of the milking stool. So if he's continuing to draw pH out of the tank, we're gonna start sucking air with that, uh, with that pump. And of course, the point of this is to show you what happens. So yes, he does. And now what happens is our pH is going to continue to drop because we have no DKH in reserve to pump over. This is the basic way that pH and DKH interact with each other. There's other things that go on which stabilization of the pH and whatever, but in its most basic form, the DKH is kind of pH in reserve. And as the pH goes down, the DKH gets converted and brings it back up. Your reef tanks really wanna be 8.2 to 8.4 pH. Now, getting that pH to drop down to a dangerous place is actually what happens in a freshwater tank. It's actually one of the most dangerous things about freshwater. It's what happens in a fish-only tank in saltwater, but it is not what happens in a reef tank. Because in a reef tank, we have tons of that calcium carbonate base. And think about it, calcium and carbonates. And if you remember, I said DKH could be also called carbonates, all right? So what happens in a reef tank is when the alkalinity gets low enough that it would affect the pH, the calcium carbonates break down. Two things happen. Calcium goes into solution and the carbonates go into alkalinity. In that case, we go back to our, our drums here, the alkalinity goes back up, which gives us some DKH in reserve to pump over into pH, and our pH comes back to 8.2 to 8.4. So your reef tanks that have this huge base of calcium carbonate in them really wanna be in that 8.2 to 8.4 range, and if they're not, we need to look at 
why they're not there. Now, the most common reason, there's three things that you'll find that most commonly will cause that pH to want to drop. Either bad circulation, and then you've got a, an area of detritus that's kind of acting like the big pearl wrasse and dropping everything out. Bad circulation, bad aeration, or CO2 pooling. CO2 is a heavy gas, and so it tends to sit on top of the water, and it lowers the, the pH. The reason I'm showing you this slide here is because it's also important to understand that when we aerate water, the only place that gas exchange happens is when water tension breaks. So no matter how many bubbles I have going up the water column, there's no gas exchange the whole time they're going and elevating in the water column. When they get to the surface and they break, and the, and the surface tension breaks, that's where we get our gas exchange. And what all this shows here is, is if you have just a very, very small surface area for that to happen, your aeration is going to be very poor. If you have a larger surface area where there can be a lot of surface breakage, then you get a lot of aeration. It's part of the reason you want a lot of um, uh, twinkle in your tanks because that shows a lot of surface breaking of the water. All right. Um, one of the biggest places that the aeration is going to happen is in the protein skimmer. And if the protein skimmer is pulling air that is high in CO2, like from a floor, sometimes you will see this type of pH problem. Now let's look at another relationship, the relationship between calcium and alkalinity, certainly very important in reef tanks. There's an inverse relationship, a teeter-totter relationship between the amount of calcium and the amount of alkalinity that can go in solution. So you can see here at up at, you know, 10 or 11 dKH alkalinity, we can only get about maybe 330, 340, 350 parts per million of calcium in solution before we're going to get a calcium carbonate precipitate. If I lower the alkalinity, I can get more calcium in solution. If I lower the calcium, I can get more alkalinity in solution. There's very little that you can do about the fact that this is an inverse relationship. We're going to talk in a minute about one of the things that you actually can do about it. An interesting thing about this is that even though you can't influence the fact that this is an inverse relationship, there are things that will influence where that inverse relationship happens. For instance, an extremely high magnesium level will raise this whole graph up so that now at your 11 or so dKH, 10 or 11 dKH, now look we're up in the 360, 370, 380 range. It's raised the whole thing up and we'll talk in a minute about how it does that. The really cool thing about that is that phosphates will do exactly the same thing, but they use a, a, an opposite mechanism to make it happen. Now, with the advent of a lot of ICP testing, we're all able to look at these chemical properties in our tanks much closer than we used to be able to look at them. And so, number one, you have to know that you don't want to go chasing numbers, but number two, you want to know that you do want to look at those numbers to see where they are and understand what they mean. And it's easier to understand what they mean these days because we can look at them more closely than we used to. But now we're going to look at one of the most important things that happens. The corals need calcium and carbonates to make those calcium carbonate pairs that go build the skeleton. Uh, and we're going to be putting that in the water. How many of you use an A, B, a two-part additive in your reefs? 
Okay, you other guys, you have calcium reactors or some uh, calcvos or some other way that you do it. I'd like to take a look and show you what happens with the two-part method. The two-part method works, but in some ways it doesn't work as well as it can because it's held back by this ionic imbalance that it creates. It's very important to understand how that ionic imbalance gets created. So in the two-part method, I'm boiling it down now to its essence. You have calcium chloride as your part A, You've got sodium carbonate or sodium bicarbonate or some combination of the two as your part B. And in solution, the calcium and the carbonates are going to form, with the help of the zooxanthellae, form that calcium carbonate matrix, which is going to get deposited down at the base of the coral. So that's out of the picture. That leaves you with the chloride and the sodium. Now, in some ways, this is super convenient because sodium and chloride love each other chemically, and they make sodium chloride. And 70% of what is the salt compounds that make up the ocean, 70% of what's in sea salt is sodium chloride, about 70%. So you're not creating anything toxic or anything terrible. But the problem is this. As you add more and more of your AB to the system, you're going to create more and more sodium chloride. And now there's an excess of sodium chloride. Well, why is that a problem? It's a problem because we keep our tanks at a certain specific gravity. I'm going to say I keep my tank at 1.025, all right? Let's see, if you keep it 2.4, 2.6, the same thing is true. I'm going to say at 1.025. And I'm going to draw this imaginary line, which is 1.025. And that imaginary line is made up by 70% sodium chloride and 30% of the stuff that my animals really want. Way more than the sodium chloride, they want the magnesium, the strontium, the molybdenum, the potassium, all of that good stuff that's in the other 30%. So 1.025, 70% sodium chloride, 30% other stuff. Now I add a bunch of AB to the system and I pump a bunch of sodium chloride in. What just happened to my salinity? It went up, right. So now it's easy to take care of. I'm gonna add some fresh water to dilute it. The problem is I'm not going to dilute my sodium chloride alone. I'm going to dilute everything. So the whole thing drops now. The average of these two things is still 1.025, but it's not 70-30 anymore. Now it's like 80-20. All right? So more sodium chloride at the same salinity has to mean less of everything else that your animals need and want. That is the inherent problem with the two-part method. Now, there's a lot of ways around that problem. There's a bunch of ways to skin this cat that are successful. There's all kinds of different ways you can do this. I'd like to explain one of those ways, which is kind of a good base for understanding all the others. It's something that is always misunderstood, and if you understand it, you can understand all of the other methods. It's the balling method. And I want to caution you to the fact that there are a lot of different products out on the market that are called balling. But if you want to actually do the balling method the way Hans Werner Balling wrote about it in 1994 and then revised it in 1996, you have to use products that are made under his supervision because there's no way you can copyright a guy's name. And so there are a lot of balling products that have nothing to do with the balling method. Now here's the way the balling method works. You still have a part A, 
which is calcium chloride. And you still have a part B, which is sodium carbonate and bicarbonate. Right here, this is the two-part method, and he started with the two-part method. But in order to balance things, Hans Werner Balling added a part C. And part C is the other 30%. It's everything that's in seawater, but no sodium chloride, and of course, none of the calcium and the carbonates that we're getting from the part A and B. The way it works is this. The calcium and the carbonates, uh, the calcium and the carbonates still form the calcium carbonate matrix that goes down in the corals. That's out of the equation. You're still left with the chloride and the sodium, and that still forms sodium chloride. But now, instead of just building sodium chloride and dumping sodium chloride into the system, we're going to add also this other 30%. These two things together are just well-balanced sea salt. So instead of doing this and this and this and this and this and this, we're going to do this. We raise both things and then we dilute both things and we're right back to where we started. Perfect ionic balance. Perfect ionic balance. All right. Uh, now, we're going to look at how this calcium carbonate actually forms. And in order to do that, we need to understand another very misunderstood thing in the industry, which is chelated calcium. So here's a calcium ion. Now this calcium ion, this is what the coral wants. The calcium ion, it doesn't want it bonded to anything. But as I told you, there's a charge on it, so often it's gonna to bond to chloride. And in fact, the calcium ion has a double positive bond, uh, uh, charge, and the chloride only has a single negative, so often the calcium will bond to uh, two chlorides. And this is what calcium chloride looks like. Now, in solution, if we were able to make a solution of calcium chloride, what you would see is that these bonds would be constantly breaking and reforming, and that's how these things end up free from time to time, is that if both of those bond bonds break at the same time just by random happenstance, you're in, you are left with a free calcium ion for the zooxanthellae to help the coral grab. In actuality, we don't make a solution of calcium chloride, we dilute this, this calcium chloride in water. And in water, we dissolve it in water, and water is extremely good at dissolving things. And the reason it's so good at dissolving things is that, here's a little water, I suppose it's, it's appropriate to have a Mickey Mouse here. Um, uh, even though the molecule itself is neutral, water is so good at dissolving things because there's a tiny bit of a negative charge on the oxygen end and there's, there's a tiny bit of a positive charge on the other end. And so it, even though it's a neutral molecule, it's got a little bit of a charge on either side. And the way water gets stuff to dissolve is by when those bonds break and things get clear by itself, they bond to it and they float it off. Now you can see, remember this had a little double positive uh, uh, bond, uh, bond, uh, charge on it, and so all the negatives of the water have surrounded it so that they can float it off. And this is how we dissolve calcium chloride. But there's a thing called chelated calcium. And this is what, here's our calcium ion again, and when it's chelated, what happens is, I'm going to bring our chelate in here, what happens is that the chelate bonds to the calcium ion so strongly 
that the poor little water molecule that's trying to get in there and surround it can't get it alone. It doesn't break off. So now the question is, well, how do we dissolve the chelated calcium and all in water? The water is really, really smart. And what it does is it completely surrounds the calcium and the chelate and then floats the whole thing off. The problem is that the calcium ion itself never gets free to allow the coral to use it with the carbonates. And many products use chelated forms of calcium because they never form a calcium car carbonate precipitate when you mix them up. So if we're looking at relation to salt, for instance, if you want to know if your salt is, has a chelated calcium in it or not, mix it incorrectly. The salt instructions always tell you, add the dry salt to the water. Do the opposite. Add the water to the dry salt. If you can add the water to the dry salt slowly and mix it up and not get a calcium carbonate precipitate, a white cloud in there, then it was probably chelated. If you use a product that is not chelated, when you add that water to the salt, the concentration is so high that you'll precipitate a huge white cloud of calcium carbonate. And that's the kind of product you want to use because the same thing that prevents the calcium ion from precipitating in the bucket also prevents your corals from being able to use it. So now that we know about how this little calcium ion gets free, let's look at how this actually forms. So here's a bunch of calcium and carbonate crystals. We're down now inside the coral polyp, and we're looking at how this is all happening uh, with the help of the zooxanthellae, and it's making a crystal. The calcium bonds to the carbonate, the carbonate bonds to the calcium, and we end up with this crystalline formation. And this is what, this crystal is what it looks like if we were to get down on the molecular level and look at the skeleton of the, of the coral itself. The takeaway from this one right here is that all of our calcium and carbonate has ended up in our crystal and now there's none in the water column. So again, if we want our coral to be able to continue to grow, we have to put calcium and carbonates into the system. That's why your calcium and carbonate keeps dropping. Now, if you remember, I said early on that we would talk about what happens with a high phosphate level and a high magnesium level. And it is a little bit of chemistry, but it is really, really fascinating. So here's that same diagram, this snapshot of the calcium and the carbonate ions. And you'll see that I've added in a couple of these big phosphate ions or big, a couple of these big yellow phosphate ions. So once again, our crystal starts to form with the calcium bonding to the carbonate and the carbonate bonding back to the calcium. But now what happens is that our phosphate is going to get into that crystal and take the place of the carbonates. Um, and once they take the place, you can see that this carbonate now can't get in and bond to where it wants to because there's a phosphate in the way. Now this crystal has, is done forming. These guys can roam around all they want. The, the crystal can't really form much more. There's a little bit more that'll form at the bottom, but it's kind of tied up because the phosphate has gotten in there and shut this crystal formation down. The takeaway from this is that before, we had no calcium and carbonates out in the water column. And now look, we've got calcium and carbonates that are stuck out in the water column that can't get into the crystal. This is how that ratio gets elevated. Remember in the beginning, with high phosphate level, the ratio goes up? That's why, because now those, 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 comp, those ions are stuck out in, in solution. They can't form a crystal. 
The same thing happens with magnesium, but with a very different mechanism. So here's our uh, uh, same diagram again, but now we've got these big green magnesiums in here. And once again, the calcium carbonate crystal starts to form. But now watch what happens. As this crystal is forming with the very high levels of magnesium, the magnesium has bonded to the carbonates that are out in the water column. Those carbonates are not free to go bond to the calcium and form the calcium carbonate matrix. So this is now shut down because all the carbonates are, are bonded up. Now, this carbonate right here that's bonded to this magnesium will show up on your test kit because it's still a carbonate. So it'll show up on your test kit, but it's not available to your corals to make calcium carbonate matrix. I like to talk about this magnesium situation because I read a lot on the internet about people that say, oh, if you're, uh, if you're having bryopsis or you're having uh, uh, some type of uh, bacteria, uh, uh, algae formation that you don't like, that you can um, raise your magnesium level up to 16 or 1700 and kill it off. Now, there's no scientific basis for why that works. There certainly is a, a ton of anecdotal evidence that that actually does work. However, what they never tell you is that during this period of time that you've elevated that magnesium level, you've stopped your calcium carbonate formation happening in your corals. So if you're going to elevate your magnesium level up to that 16, 1700 to deal with some kind of algae, you need to make sure that you elevate your carbonate level and your calcium level so that your animals can continue to exist and grow. And then when you kill off that algae that you're trying to kill off, then you need to go back and do some very aggressive water changes to get that magnesium, that excess magnesium, out of your tank so that you can go back to normal parameters. And that's why. All right. <clears throat> now we're talking a lot about different relationships. And it's important to understand that there's a lot of different ways to look at things. You take half of what I said or take three quarters of what I said and go down to the, uh, to the exhibit floor there and, and uh, re repeat it to some guys. They'll give you some other opinions. There's tons of different ways to look at things. Here's a periodic table that we all know and love from high school, right? <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about these, these specific chemicals. But it's important to understand that there's a lot of ways to represent the same material. These are all periodic tables. They're just periodic tables designed in different ways. My favorite one is this one. I, I, think, I think the guy that designed that periodic table, I'd love to talk to him and find out what, he, what kind of pill he took or something. So we're going to look at um, something in a different way than you've been hearing about it, and it's carbon dosing. Carbon dosing, I'm a big fan of carbon dosing. I'll, I'll put that right out there right now. But carbon dosing has gotten a bad rap. And carbon dosing gets a bad rap because most of the time it's not done correctly. People say, oh, I want to lower my phosphate nitrate level. Let's throw in a bunch of vodka or vinegar or sugar or one of the other products that's made. There's tons of different ways to do it. It turns out that not all carbon dosing is created equal. And in my opinion, it's not really for lowering your nitrate and phosphate level. There's a much more important thing that it does. And what I want to do as my last little thing today is to talk about the really important thing that carbon dosing does. Now, there's a reason that everybody says carbon dosing 
is for lowering your phosphate and nitrate level. It's because the theory of carbon dosing comes from commercial fish aquaculture where they want to they want to grow you know 10,000 uh, uh, sun bass in a in a big tank and it's way overpopulated. And if they carbon dose, they can get the nitrate and the phosphate level down. So that kind of bled over into the aquarium trade that using the carbon dosing is for lowering the phosphate nitrate level. And it does do that, and that's a great byproduct, but it's a byproduct. Here's how it really works. Here's our coral polyp again. Now, coral polyps have an excellent mechanism for taking nitrates out of the water column. And they have a lousy mechanism for taking phosphates out of the water column. And this is really unfortunate because they can live in a zero nitrate environment and they can't live in a zero phosphate environment. So the very thing that they need, they don't have the ability to get at the very low concentrations that we keep them in reef aquariums. Now, there is beneficial bacteria that's floating all around the aquarium and living inside the corals and living inside everything. There's all kinds of beneficial bacteria and fungi in that aquarium. And the interesting thing about that beneficial bacteria and fungi is that it has exactly the opposite. It's got an excellent mechanism for getting phosphates out of the water column and pretty lousy mechanism for getting nitrates out of the water column. So the way carbon dosing works is this. Here's our beneficial algae. And he's gonna eat a bunch of phosphate. He's gonna swim around the tank and eat, eat a bunch of phosphate. So he's got a bunch of phosphate inside of him. All right, now we go, oh, sorry. And that lowers the phosphate level in the aquarium because he's eaten it, took it out of the water column. All right, now we go to our aquarium and there's our coral polyp again. And this bacteria and fungi is gonna float around the tank filled with phosphate, and the coral is gonna eat a lot of it. And if you can, you can see there's a guy over here because the skimmer is gonna take some out too, so we let that guy escape, but most of the, the, uh, the bacteria is going to be eaten by the corals. And when they eat the bacteria, they're getting the phosphate in them, all right? And that maintains that phosphate out of the water column, and now it's in the corals. And the corals needed that phosphate in order to grow. Now what happens is the corals start to grow. And remember, the corals have a really good mechanism for getting the nitrates out of the water column. So as the corals grow, the nitrates come out of the water column. That's why the phosphates and the nitrate level go down with carbon dosing. And the really key thing here, the most important thing is that, yes, your nitrate and phosphates went down, but much more importantly, we gave the coral polyps a mechanism for getting those phosphates that they really need when our phosphate levels are down under 0.1, which is extremely difficult for them to do. That to me is way more important there's, I could do a bunch of water changes and get the nitrate and phosphate level down in the tank, but it didn't go into anything that needed it. It went into my drain. So, hopefully some of this was understandable for you today. Uh, uh, you saw that we took some simple complex, simple uh, uh, concepts and made them a little bit more complicated, but we also do some, took some simple ones, uh, some, some complicated ones and, and made them a little bit more simple for you. Um, I am available 
at 301 to answer whatever questions you guys have, if you have further questions. Um, I think I've got a stack of cards here in the back that I can, um, that I can give anybody a card that they would like. And uh, I'm done a little bit early, so I'm also happy to entertain any questions uh, that you guys might have.